Good morning. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 9. Ezra, chapter 9. And as you're finding that portion of God's word, I want to read a single verse out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 17. No need to turn there, but listen to these words as you find the book of Ezra. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now the verse is speaking of a man named Esau. Now, many of us will be familiar with that Old Testament story, Jacob and Esau, and how Esau was the firstborn, and as the firstborn, he was entitled to the birthright, uh, the covenant promises, and he gave it up. He traded it all for a single meal to his brother Jacob. But afterward, we read here in the book of Hebrews, afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, that verse troubled me for many, many years uh, as a young man. couldn't make any sense out of it. Uh, why? Well, Esau's upset. Um, Esau's crying. Esau is in the grips of sorrow and despondency and shame, I suppose. And Esau wants the birthright. He seems to want to uh, correct what he had done wrong. And yet the word of God affirms right there in Hebrews 12, 17, that he did not seek for what? Repentance. And I struggle with that verse to understand what that meant because uh, from my vantage point, it looked to me like Esau was a man repenting. All the right indicators, don't you think? There's uh, regret. There are tears. There's an acknowledgement of wrong. And yet Scripture makes it clear that despite all of that, Esau never repented. And uh, it's important for us to understand, and this is by way of introduction to what we're going to look at in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. Important for us to understand that in the Bible... There are two kinds of repentance. Two kinds of repentance. Uh, theologians use fancy words to describe these two kinds of repentance. I'll give them to you. The words aren't important. If they're a stumbling block, just ignore them. But, but get the concept, please. Uh, theologians identify two kinds of repentance in the Bible. There is over here uh, what they call attrition. Okay, Think of that word, attrition. And there is over here contrition. So you have Repentance number one, attrition. And repentance number two, contrition. And so in this first category, this first kind of repentance, contrition, uh, it's possible to have a person who sheds a lot of tears, a person who regrets what they've done, a person who shows remorse. But the problem is this, their sorrow simply flows from either a fear of punishment or flows from the negative consequences that they're now experiencing because of their foolish behavior. And so that little boy, I guess it could easily be a little girl, but we'll go with little boy, Johnny. Uh, dinner is finished. He's had his piece of cake. Half the cake is left over. And mom puts that cake in the fridge and utters a dire warning. You dare not touch the remainder of that cake in the refrigerator. Well, little Johnny, as he's prone to do. Later on, when his mom and dad aren't watching, opens that refrigerator, has his hands on a piece of that cake. His mom, at that moment, enters into the kitchen. He spits spots her, and immediately he breaks down in tears. 
Why? He knows what's coming. He is going to pay for his transgression. That is, friends, merely attrition. That is attrition. It is the fear of being caught. It is the fear of punishment. It is struggling with the consequences that arise from sinful behavior, not to be confused with contrition. What makes contrition different is this. It is sorrow that arises not merely out of punishment, not merely because of the negative consequences, but a sorrow that arises when we understand that our sin in the first place is against God. When we understand that our sins, our transgressions, are against God, it embraces the entire being. It grips our entire soul. Uh, There's an intellectual component, isn't there? Our minds. We understand, I understand, what I have done uh, violates God's command. I understand that what I have done displeases God. So that's intellectual. That's good. There's also an emotional component. That as I understand that what I have done displeases God, uh, well, it, 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 kind of, it kind of grips me emotionally and, and captures the heart. But there is thirdly, and this is what sets contrition apart from attrition, there is a volitional component, meaning what? It grips my will, whereby I actually what? Do something. What? I forsake my sin. There's the difference. I hope that's clear. Attrition, contrition. Lots of tears in both. Lots of regret in both. But here's the fundamental difference. In the realm of attrition, there is no sense of having sinned against God, and therefore there is no desire to forsake sin. In the realm of contrition, because we understand and perceive that our sin has offended God, we are compelled to forsake it. Now, I'm going to throw a sentence out there, and it might make you stumble a little bit when you first hear it, but just keep it in mind because we started here, we're going to go to Ezra 9 and 10, and we're going to come full circle right back, and I'll pick up this statement later on this morning. The the statement is this, God won't forgive what we don't forsake. God doesn't forgive what we don't forsake. Keep that in mind. You found the book of Ezra, right? We're clear on these two kinds of repentance as found in the word of God, attrition, contrition. We're we're clear on the difference that uh, in the realm of contrition, we understand we've sinned against God. It grips us in, in our minds, our hearts, intellectually, emotionally, but volitionally, whereby we actually forsake our sin. That is true repentance in marked contrast to what Esau experienced which was merely attrition, false repentance. So we've got all that clear now. You found Ezra chapter 9, and follow along as I begin reading the first few words in verse 1. After these things had been done. Important. Why? Because it marks for us the commencement of a new section, a new unit in this book. And so unit number one, if you've been accompanying this series, you already know Unit number one consists of chapters one through six, in which Ezra describes that journey, that return of a remnant from the city of Babylonia to the city of Jerusalem, back in 538 B.C. Unit number two is chapters seven and eight, 
in which Ezra describes another return, 458 B.C., of which he himself was a part. As a matter of fact, a return from Babylonia to Jerusalem that he himself headed up. He led it. And now we enter into a third unit, a third section, after these things had been done. Five months have passed. The officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed. And blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now... For a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, Do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed, and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. 
A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Well, that is a fascinating passage of Scripture on many different levels. And we're going to try to touch most of them today, but perhaps not all. I want us to proceed carefully, cautiously, through these chapters, 9 and 10. And remember, we're going to come full, repent, full circle to that statement that God won't forgive what we don't forsake. And then we're going to conclude this morning by uh, stepping back and concluding this entire series in the book of Ezra by affirming four key lessons that emerge from this book of old in the Old Testament. So for now... The task at hand to get our minds and hearts around chapters 9 and 10. I think we can do that if we notice, we notice three things. And these three things hinge on the, 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 central, the central portion of these chapters, which is Ezra's prayer. You heard it. I hope. I pray you heard the man praying. Uh, it, it, it just kind of leaps off the page as we, as we hear uh, the words of this man of God, this, this prophet of old, this scribe of old, this priest of old, interceding on behalf of the nation. And so if we get our minds around three things related to his prayer, we'll have the gist of this passage. So the first thing we're going to get our minds around is the cause of his prayer. Why? Why does Ezra pray? We find the answer to that question. We find the cause of Ezra's prayer in the first five verses. And so look with me again at the outset of the chapter, verse 1. After these things had been done, almost five months have passed. Here's a good question. What has Ezra been doing in these five months? The answer is obvious. He's been doing, he's been fulfilling uh, the very purpose for which he had returned to Jerusalem, which was to do what? To preach and teach. Go back to chapter 7 just for a moment. And remind yourselves, if you weren't here last Sunday, if you were here last Sunday, or perhaps this is new to you, but it's pretty straightforward, pretty simple, chapter 7, verse 10, and, uh, and look at this description we have here of Ezra. He had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so we, here we have a man of devotion. Here we have a committed man, and we see the object of his devotion, it is the law of the Lord, the word of God. We have the extent of his devotion, it is his heart. The affections of his heart he has committed to, he has dedicated to the law of the Lord. And we have the expression of his devotion. Yes, the law of the Lord, to do what with it? To study it, to obey it, to do it, and to teach his, that is God's, statutes and rules in Israel. This is what this scribe, this priest, Ezra, has been doing For five months, he has been preaching. 
He has been teaching the law of the Lord. By God's good providence, by God's good grace, the Spirit of God is working through the ministry of the Word of God, and it is beginning to bear fruit. How? There is an inkling of what? Conviction. And we read in the first verse that the people of Israel, some of the officials, approached to inform Ezra that the people of Israel, not just your average man, but even some of the priests and the Levites, uh, they've sinned. How? They have not separated themselves from the women that belong to the foreign nations that still inhabit the land. They have taken some of those women as wives for themselves and as wives for their sons. Now, careful here. Be cautious. Go back and read the book of Numbers. Go back and read the book of Deuteronomy. The sin that they are guilty of is not marrying outside of their race. Clear here. The sin is not marrying outside of their race. I I remember years ago reading something of a man, uh, this text, other texts, trying to argue against interracial marriage. The man, in a nutshell, was a racist and semi-delusional and was overstretching, certainly, when it came to the interpretation of this text. The sin is not marrying outside of their ethnicity. It is not marrying outside of their race. The issue is this. They were marrying outside of their religion. Marrying outside of the faith. God had forbidden, had forbidden the Israelites from intermarrying with these nations. Why? Not because he was against the interracial marriages in and of themselves. No. It is because he knew that these nations were riddled with idolatry. And if the nation intermarried, what would be the result? They would lead Israel away from God to worship and serve false gods. But again, let me repeat. The sin was not marrying outside of the race. After all, all we need to think of is Boaz and Ruth. God had no problem with that. As a matter of fact, Ruth is in the very genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. No problem there, even though Ruth belonged to Moab. Right? No problem. Why? Because she was a, she was a believer. The sin was what? Marrying outside of their religion. Marrying outside of the faith. And so these officials, because Ezra has been preaching, and Ezra has been going over the law, and Ezra has been going over God's expectations, his rules, his commands, the spirit of conviction lays hold. The officials come to Ezra and they say, look, we have messed up badly. Uh, We're riddled with this sin now. The people of Israel, including the leaders, priests and Levites, they have intermarried with the nations. They have taken unbelieving women as their spouses. What is Ezra's response? It's quite, it's quite striking, really. Very compelling. Very moving. The third verse. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard. And notice this last expression in the third verse. And sat appalled. Comes up again, that expression, fourth verse. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. The danger of going off on a tangent and not being able to find my way back. Here we go. Simply because 
I feel it in my own life. I'll, I'll confess it publicly. And I lament over it in the life of the church. We are no longer appalled by what should appall us. We have become uh, desensitized to sin. Uh, what should shock us no longer shocks us. What should make our blood curl no longer has any effect or impact upon us. Sin and depravity and degradation have become so commonplace, have been labeled entertainment to such a degree that it no longer touches us. It's like water off a duck's back. Oh, to be more like Ezra. To be like this man, that when he hears of what these people have done, his response isn't, oh well, let bygones be bygones. Oh well, you know, there's so many of them. It's kind of socially acceptable. Who really cares? Oh well, it doesn't matter that much. Um, let's just focus on this over here. No, here, here is a man with such a tender conscience that when this sin is made known to him, he tears his very clothes, he pulls the hair from his very head, and he sits appalled. Okay, there you have the cause of his prayer, the cause of his prayer. Now, before we move on from it, you'll notice if you're following the sermon notes, I'm going to ask a question related to each of these three things. And so I think, I think a very pertinent, relevant, important question that arises from these first five verses is this. Uh, do we tremble before God's word? Look at the start of verse 4, four in Ezra 9. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Do you tremble at God's word? Important for us to understand that God's word is God's presence. Uh, the reformers understood that. At the time of the Reformation within the Roman Catholic Church, when you entered into a church, a cathedral, um, what was the focal point? It was the altar. Why? Because of the doctrine of transubstantiation. And so because of their belief in transubstantiation, they believed the altar was the greatest place on earth because it was there that the bread and the wine transubstantiated into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the altar represented for them the very presence of God. What did the reformers do? They broke those altars in two and threw them out back. And they set up what? A pulpit. Why? To indicate what? That it is not the altar that symbolizes or points to God's presence among us. It is his word. I, don't, I, I fear we don't get this. The word of God is the presence of God. Do we tremble before it? Or are we kind of... I don't know, apathetic in our approach to it, careless in our approach to it, uh, presumptuous in our approach to it. And John Bunyan wrote many years ago, those who fear God are those who stand in awe of the word. They have the very form of the word engraved upon the face of their souls. Friend, understand this. To fear God is to fear his word. My attitude toward the word of God, read, heard, proclaimed, my attitude to the word of God 
is my attitude toward God himself? Do you tremble before God's word? Second section is this, the content of Ezra's prayer. Brings us into verse 6, right through to verse 15. And he begins in the verse 6 with his prayer. Oh my God, just cries out to the Lord. He's appalled, I'm ashamed, I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities, here's an interesting description, have risen higher than our heads. In other words, we're drowning in them. And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Well, take it easy, Ezra. What's the big deal? A few unfortunate marriages. The whole world isn't falling apart. Ezra's world is falling apart. When he considers what the remnant has done, and as far as he is concerned, their sin mounts higher than their heads. They are drowning in it. And their guilt is as high as the tallest mountain. Why? Why does he feel this way? He gives us three reasons. The first is this. They have disregarded God's judgment. So he's appalled. He's ashamed. He blushes. Why? Because they have disregarded God's judgment. Look at the seventh verse. From the days of our fathers, our forefathers, to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. Remember, in effect, he's saying this. Let's remember our history. Let's just look back to our forefathers and let's understand this. From the moment our forefathers entered the land, they disobeyed this command. And they they began to intermarry with unbelievers. They began to take wives from among the nations. And those nations led them into gross idolatry. Go back and think of the days of the judges. That's what happened. Go back and think of the days of the kings. Think of Solomon himself. And think of all those foreign women he married. And how he ended up building a temple to celebrate and to worship just about every god under heaven. Think about how the kingdom was divided. And think of our idolatry resulting from this disobedience. And think and remember how it was this that brought about God's judgment. It was because of this very sin. That God sent the Assyrians and destroyed the northern kingdom. It was because of this very sin that God sent the Babylonians and destroyed the southern kingdom. Have we learned nothing? That's what he's saying. How can we be so blind? How could we be so ignorant? Think back on our history. The very sin that we now commit is the very sin for which God has judged us. And the man is appalled. The man is ashamed because the people have blinders on. Oh, they're stubborn in their iniquity. And the hardness of heart is nothing but appalling because they have disregarded God's judgment. There's a second reason. He's appalled and ashamed because they have despised God's favor. Verse 8. But now for a brief moment, Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant 
And to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins. And to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Oh friends, he's saying. It was God who stirred the heart of Cyrus. And issued that decree allowing you to return. It was God who protected you from your enemies. When you gathered here. And they were surrounding you and oppressing you. It was God who provided for the reconstruction of his temple. It was God who sent Haggai and Zechariah to exhort you and to encourage you in your labors. It was God who now stirred King Artaxerxes, allowing us a second remnant to return from exile to the city of Jerusalem. God's hand of favor, despite our sin. God's loving kindness, Despite our rebellion, we've tasted of it of late. Oh, he had sent us into exile. He had sent us into captivity. He had sent us into Babylon. And now for one reason alone, his steadfast love, he has preserved a remnant for himself. He has brought us back. He has given us a place in Jerusalem. And he has overseen the rebuilding of his temple. Do you not understand you sin against God's goodness? You didn't deserve any of that. That's what he's saying to them. If God had dealt fairly with you, if God had dealt justly with you, he would have abandoned you in Babylon. Yet he has brought you back, poured his steadfast love upon you. I am appalled, says Ezra. You've lost sight of it. That you would sin. We're not talking about seven generations later. We're talking about the very days. This this is recent history. These are current events. These are tangible things that the people can see and touch. I'm appalled as I consider the fact that you have despised God's favor. But he gives a third reason. They've disobeyed God's command. That brings us into the 10th verse. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering, to take possession of it, is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations. They have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong And eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. So I say, think back. Uh, The prophet of prophets, Moses, he warned us. That man of God, as he stood as a mediator between our God, the living God, and us. And he handed us God's law. And he made clear God's expectations. He commanded us on God's behalf. We were not to intermarry with those nations. We did it anyway. And we fell into idolatry. And then we had the the, the entire school of prophets. Prophets after prophets whom God sent 
to chastise us, whom God sent to correct us, whom God sent to rebuke us, and we turned a deaf ear generation after generation after generation. And now here we are almost a thousand years later, and we're doing exactly the same thing. God has said, God has spoken, and yet we disobey God's command. And so for these three reasons, they've disregarded God's judgment, they've despised God's favor, and they've disobeyed God's command. Ezra sits appalled. Ezra is overcome with a holy shame. And then he gives his own conclusion beginning in verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stay before you because of this. Notice what isn't there. No excuses. Yes, here's what we've done, but not really our fault given the prevailing situation or circumstances. No excuses. No attempt to defend himself or to defend the nation. What's really interesting is this. In the entire prayer, there isn't one prayer request. Did you catch catch that? Ezra doesn't make any petitions. That's remarkable. Ezra doesn't pray for anything. Why? Because Ezra is appalled. Ezra, Ezra simply prostrates himself before the living God because he is overcome by the nation's sin. And Ezra's conclusion, given the fact how they have despised God's judgment, despised God's command, despised God's favor, Ezra's conclusion is this. Here we are, O God, in our guilt. You can do with us whatever you please. There is no cry for mercy. There is no request for forgiveness. There is no petition There is complete abandonment before the living God and an acknowledgement on the part of this man of God that God is just and God has the right to do with them whatsoever he pleases. And the question I want to ask is this, friend. Do you realize that God hasn't given you what you deserve? Do you realize, do I realize, That God has not given us what we deserve. If he had, you wouldn't be here. If he had, I wouldn't be here. We would be in a place that scripture calls hell. Here's something else, friend, I want you to be very careful with. Never ask God to treat you fairly. Never ask God to treat you fairly. If God were to treat us fairly... And if God were to deal with us according to what we deserve, 
this room would be empty right now. You see, that is the place Ezra is brought to. Ezra is brought to what theologians refer to as the wonderful doctrine of God's just liberty. God is just, meaning what? God is free to do with you and me whatsoever he pleases because he owes neither you nor me anything. He does not owe us anything. The Apostle Paul could declare in Romans chapter 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And if I am to have any dealings with a holy God, if I am to have any dealings with a just God, it will be on his basis. And it will be mercy upon mercy. Now we come to the third division, the third thing. Look at the consequence of Ezra's prayer. That brings us into chapter 10, the whole chapter really. I only read the first five verses because they suffice. They give us the gist of the matter. And so we read that Ezra, as he is praying at the outset of chapter 10, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Praise God. A very great assembly of men, women, and children. Kids. Did you notice that? Children. Gather to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. There's response number one. The consequence of Ezra's prayer. The people weep. Now look at verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. There's the second consequence. The people confess their sin. Now look at verse 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. There's consequence number three or response number three. They forsake their sin. Did you catch their threefold response? Number one, they weep over their sin. Number two, they confess, they admit, they acknowledge their sin. And number three, they forsake their sin. Now, I wish I could just plow ahead here and stress and declare what is the main message here, but I know I can't because many of you will be wondering to yourself, what, 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 what's going on here? Is Ezra right to do that? To encourage these men to divorce their wives and send them away along with the children? Was, was that a good thing? Did Ezra choose the right path? Was that the right remedy? And if that was the right remedy for then, is that the right remedy for now? Maybe none of you are asking that question. Now I feel sorry I even raised it, but it's out there now and I have to deal with it. What, 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 how, what, what sense are we supposed to make out of this? And so just, just step over here for a moment. We'll get right back into the flow of their threefold response, the consequence in a moment. But just step over here because we have to say an expl- give an explanatory word, won't we? Don't we? And, and I want you to understand, said it in, in, in a bigger context. When you read the Bible, when I read the Bible, understand that in Scripture we have descriptive, a word I'm going to use right here, descriptive portions of God's Word, verses, descriptive things, and we have prescriptive things. Did you catch that? So descriptive things, in other words, there are verses as we read our Bibles that simply describe events as they unfold. 
without ever making a commentary uh, as to whether or not they're moral or immoral. Just, they just describe events. And then there are portions of Scripture which are prescriptive, meaning they contain commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Here's a new commandment I give unto you, that you love your neighbor as you love yourself, or even as I have loved you. And so we have prescriptive portions of God's word, commands which are obviously for us. The problem arises when we enter into this realm of descriptive verses. So, for example, uh, John 13, the Lord Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Are we supposed to do that? Uh, John's simply describing what happened in the upper room. Uh, the Lord Jesus washed the disciples' feet. There are some Christians that believe, therefore we should what? It's a third ordinance, foot washing. We should wash one another's feet. And other, other believers say, well, no, that's just John describing something that happened. What's really important is the text where the Lord Jesus then says, a new commandment I give to you, that you ought to love one another even as I have loved you. How have I loved you? I just washed your feet. Tremendous display of my humility, and I'm about to die on the cross for you. And so there, there's the, there's, there are the commands to love one another, and simply we have a description of how that played out in the relationship between the Lord Jesus and the disciples. That makes sense. I'll give you another one. Paul, in a couple of his letters, concludes with, a, with an admonition that we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. What's going on there? Cody Popejoy is all for it. <laughs> and and I, I mean, Cody and I disagree over this. I think what we have there is descriptive. That the principle is what? Well, it's, it's, it's warmth, it's fellowship, it, it's loving one another. Well, that was a, a culturally applicable expression of that. And so it is a descriptive portion of Scripture. Is this making sense? Don't forget about the book of Ezra. We're going back there. As you read the Bible, understand that all the Scripture subdivides into one of those two categories. Either it is descriptive, simply explaining what happened, or it is prescriptive. Uh, that is directly for us and commands us and requires something of us. Now go back to what we read here in Ezra chapter 10. We have a descriptive portion of Scripture. We have a unique nation with a unique calling in the midst of unique circumstances. And Ezra, as a man of God, believes this is what is required to remedy the situation, to halt the sin. Interestingly enough, in the next book, Nehemiah, a third remnant is going to return to Jerusalem. And guess what's going to happen? They're going to fall in precisely the same sin. But Nehemiah does not require them to divorce their wives. He requires it to stop there. No more marriages. So we have Ezra dealing with it in one way because circumstances required it. Nehemiah dealing with it in another way because circumstances required it. But it would be a big mistake on our part if we were to rip that out of its context and make it normative for us today. What's normative for us today? Matthew 19 is normative for us today. That in, except in the case of sexual immorality, any man who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. He marries another, he commits adultery. That's prescriptive. 1 Corinthians 7 is prescriptive, where, God, where Paul describes this relationship between a believer and an unbeliever. Well, if the unbeliever agrees to stay with and continue married to the believer, the believer is to remain in that marriage. That is prescriptive. So I raise all this and hammer away at it because I have met an individual or two in the past who has gone to the book of Ezra to legitimize and to justify them divorcing their spouse. They are semi-delusional and are in left field. They have twisted and manipulated the word of God in order to justify and legitimize their sin in their own eyes. 
Very careful, friends. Descriptive and prescriptive. And so here we have something descriptive occurring in the book of Ezra. But we dare not lose sight of the main lesson, message, which is what? That the Israelites, when confronted with their sin, as Ezra sits appalled and prays, they weep over their sin. They confess their sin. And they forsake their sin. That's repentance. That's not attrition. That is contrition. That is repentance in that it embraces the mind. They know they've sinned and offended God, disobeyed, transgressed his law. It embraces the heart. It's emotional. They feel it. They weep. And it is volitional. They do something about it. They act. They forsake it. And that's why I said in the intro, and I ask you to keep this, 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 this statement in view. God won't forgive what we don't forsake. Why? Because Christ's message is this. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is yes. I know I've sinned intellectually. I see how that disobeys God's command. Repentance is I feel it emotionally, the burden and weight of my sin. And repentance is doing something about it. It is forsaking sin. When we speak of forsaking sin, we need to make a careful division here between actions and affections. Because it gets complicated. Unless somebody stumbled over this, let me just for a few minutes, a few minutes clarify what I mean. Repentance within the realm of actions. Repentance within the realm of affections. In the realm of actions, when we repent and we forsake something, it's done. We walk away. And so you're engaged to an unbeliever. Well, the word of God forbids that marriage. And so you repent. It's the realm of actions. And so what do you do? You call off the engagement. That is to forsake sin. You're in the midst of a divorce, and there's no reason, biblical reason, for that divorce. And now you're confronted with the word of God, and you repent. Meaning what? You stop the divorce proceeding. You've been dishonest, either in filing your tax or in your business practices. It's brought to light in the word of God. You repent. Meaning what? You, 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 you restore what you've taken. You make it right, and you stop it moving forward. You're spending too much time in front of the TV. And you know it's not healthy spiritually. You know it's displeasing to God. It's not helpful to the family. So you repent, meaning what? This is profound. You turn off the TV. You stop it. You're eating too much, drinking too much. You're not loving your neighbor as you ought. You've refused to forgive someone who sought sought forgiveness and restoration. And so when, when the word of God shines light on these sins which involve our actions, we repent. We recognize with our minds this is wrong. We feel it in our hearts. I've sinned against God, and I, got, I need to do something here. And it involves our wills. We forsake it. The same is true in the realm of affections, but it's a little more complicated because it's not as neat and tidy, is it? So I worry too much. It's a sin. I fear things I shouldn't. That's a sin. Struggling with, with, with greed or with envy or with bitterness, host of other things, idols of the heart. I repent, I forsake them. Well, how do I forsake them? Because they're back tomorrow. What does that mean, I forsake them? Simply this, it means each and every day I bring these things before the cross of Christ. 
and I behold a bleeding, bloody, suffering Savior and understand that he died for my sin and I mortify these misplaced, twisted affections before Christ's cross. It is a daily battle, a daily struggle. It is forsaking sin daily. It is the life, said Martin Luther, of repentance. The Christian journey, we don't repent at the outset and then that's it. For Martin Luther, the Christian journey is daily a life of repentance. Repentance. So do you repent? That's the question that arises out of the consequence of Ezra's prayer. I'm not asking, have you repented? I'm asking, do you repent? Do I repent? Do I hear that clarion call from the lips of the Lord Jesus as he embarked on his public ministry? Repent and believe the gospel. This isn't easy believism. Uh, we, we, we profess and we proclaim and we celebrate. Yes, we are justified by faith. We sang, we sang it earlier that, that, that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That is the obedience of Christ. Christ has paid the penalty for our sin at Calvary's cross. The Spirit's work in us in this is the starting point. It is all of grace. And because of the Spirit's work in us, we believe. We rest in the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope, as our only Savior. But that faith is a repenting faith. That faith is a faith that leads to change. That faith is a faith that then manifests itself in what? Repentance. Not mere attrition, friend. Friend, do not be an Esau. Do not be a Saul. Do not be a Judas. That was all attrition. You're looking for contrition. True repentance that embraces the mind, the affections, and the will. Now quickly, as we conclude this morning, and we conclude our study of the book of Ezra, let me give you quickly, I do promise quickly, four key lessons that emerge from the book as a whole. So as you think back over the past two or three months, including the little book of Haggai that we went to, uh, what are the four main lessons that we should be left with, takeaway, tangibles from the book of Ezra? The first is this. The book of Ezra creates a sense of despondency. Sadly, it does. It creates a sense of despondency. How does it end? Sin. Will these people never learn? No. Have these people not learned anything over their thousand-year history? No. From the moment God redeemed them from Egypt and, and gathered them at Mount Sinai, they sinned, they were idolatrous, and their entire history is, sim- is simply what? The recurrence of their idolatry and their departure from the living God, and their history ends just as it began in sin and disobedience and idolatry. And so the book leaves us, gives us a sense of despondency. That here we have the nation of Israel, at one time captive in the land of Egypt. Terrible slavery. And then we have the nation of Israel in the land, but that period, the tumultuous period, 300 years of judges, And again, oppression and slavery at times. And then we have the kingdom divided and the northern kingdom sent off into slavery, Assyria. And the southern kingdom sent off into Babylon, slavery. And now a remnant has been returned to Jerusalem. But Ezra acknowledges it. Ezra confesses it. We are but slaves. We're now under the control, we're under the control still of a foreign king, the king of Persia. So the history of the nation of Israel is a history of what? Slavery. But here's the thing. It's not their biggest problem. 
This is what we're left with from the book of Ezra, that there is slavery, whether it was in Egypt or to those other nations during the period of the judges, or whether it was to Assyria, Babylon, or Persia. That was not the problem. What was the problem? All this while they have been enslaved to sin, and they've never been able to do anything about it. It leaves us with a sense of despondency. Second main message is this. It creates a sense of expectancy. It creates a sense of expectancy. They're back in the land. They've rebuilt a temple. And you go back and you read Haggai and Zechariah. You read Jeremiah and Isaiah. And you read all of these beautiful descriptive prophecies of what it's going to be like, this glorious temple and this glorious land and this king and this kingdom. And yet here you have, what, ten... Tens of thousands, that's all, Jews, restored to a a land which is simply a province of the Persian Empire, a temple that pales in comparison with the glory of Solomon's temple, and a nation that will never again anoint a king. You see, something far greater is in view. Just as these people, their main problem has never been their physical or political captivity to Egypt or Babylon or Persia or Assyria or anyone else, so too their hope has never been terrestrial. Their true hope has never been actually a physical building. Their true hope has never been a small, tiny strip of land. Their true hope has been an individual. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, as he embarks on his public ministry, Luke 4.18 declares, as he quotes from the book of Isaiah, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. not talking about Persia. not talking about Babylon. And this is what scandalized the Jews. I'm not even talking about Rome. You've got far bigger problems than Rome. You have been enslaved to sin your entire national history. Representative of humanity. Slaves to sin. But I have come to preach, to declare liberty to captives. How? By bearing the penalty of our sin at Calvary's cross. He now offers sinners forgiveness. He offers enemies peace. He offers outsiders acceptance. He offers those heading to hell eternal life. And so it creates a sense of expectancy. Thirdly, it accentuates the glory, accentuates the glory of divine sovereignty. Throughout the book, every page, almost in every line, we see that God has a hand in it all, governing all things. God has one plan that encompasses all ages and embraces all things. What an anchor to the soul. It produces gratitude in prosperity. It produces patience in adversity. It affords comfort for the present. And it affords hope for the future. The glory of divine sovereignty. And fourthly and finally, with this we end... The book of Ezra points to our need for renewal. Friend, it is your greatest need right now, and it is my greatest need right now, renewal. Renewal in our lives as men and women. Renewal in our marriages. Renewal in our homes. Renewal in our church. The Christian journey from the personal to the corporate is a continual, what, act of? Renewal and restoration. 
The book of Ezra unlocks the key. Let me give you this statement. You write it down and you meditate on it later. God's hand restores. That's the first six chapters. God's hand restores. God's word reveals. That's chapter 7 and 8. And God's people repent. That's chapters 9 and 10. That is the pathway to renewal as individuals, in our marriages, in our families, as a church. God's hand restores. God's word reveals. And God's people repent. Our Father, as we conclude this day, we pray that you would uh, give us understanding as it concerns your word. Help us to ask the right questions, the questions that uh, your word asks of us. Uh, Keep us from turning away. Uh, Keep us from turning a blind eye and a deaf ear. Help us to probe our own hearts before your word in the light of your word. And by your spirit, show us those things that you would say to us. Uh, You're aware of every need. Uh, You're aware of every situation and circumstance of each individual gathered here. I praise you again that your word is sufficient for all our needs. And so thank you for it. Uh, Thank you for your spirit who applies it and enables us to to understand it. And I ask that you would glorify yourself through your word and plant it deep within our hearts this day. And we ask it, seek it from you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.